Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Boss Podcast and we are welcoming Tendai Ricky to the show with his talk from Boss 2018 looking at why innovation is hard and how clever ideas aren't enough. Welcome to the Business of Software Podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Tendai is an award-winning author and corporate innovation expert. As associate partner at Strategizer, he helps companies innovate for the future while managing their core business. Tendai is a speaker, workshop facilitator and advisor on innovation to leaders across the globe and has written three books and his latest book is Pirates in the Navy, How Innovators Drive Transformation. Having spent over 12 years in academia, during which time he taught at the University of Kent, where he is now honorary senior lecturer, he has also been a research fellow at Stanford University and research assistant at Harvard University. In this talk, he presents eight business models to consider when attempting to innovate, followed by a Q&A with some great questions from the audience about innovating in a large corporate. Happy listening. All right. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Tendai. And it's a great pleasure for me to be here. You never know what to do with this thing, by the way. You're going to walk around it or, or, or hold it. But yeah, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. I am the person that's going to try and keep you awake after you've had your a big lunches. So I will try and do a good job of doing that. I spend a lot of my time hanging out with entrepreneurs and um, intrapreneurs and innovators in large companies and small companies and startup accelerators. And if you spend as much time with entrepreneurs as I do, the first thing you learn is that they're full of it. <laughs> right? like, I've never met a bunch of people that are so full of it, like entrepreneurs and innovators and inventors. And it's because they see the world differently than most people, and probably from all their lives they've seen the world um, differently. And they actually think that the fact that they see the world differently is the reason they're going to be successful, like, as if that's like, sufficient. And then, if it actually happens that they become successful, then they become truly unbearable. <laughs> because you see, uh, entrepreneurs are great storytellers. And so, as they start to tell the stories of their success, they start to have foundation myths about their startups and, and successful companies. And these founding myths tend to paper, uh, paper over the details. They paper over the details. Uh, they, the, 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 their success seems um, linear in nature. They talk about how one day they were having dinner and they suddenly realized that it was annoying to look at the menu. <laughs> <laughs> and in that moment, <laughs> the idea came to life. Or one day I was on a train and I suddenly realized that, wouldn't it be cool if dot, 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 <laughs> right? And, and this, this foundation it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And what I dislike about the foundation myth is that it overemphasizes the value of clever ideas. Right? And, and what we know about entrepreneurship is that successful entrepreneurship sometimes has little to do with clever ideas. Right? A lot of the companies that are really successful nowadays, um, most entrepreneurs don't succeed at the idea, the first idea that they had. If you think about PayPal, they were working on some cryptography software stuff. Then it was money transfer via PDA and ultimately landing on the product that they have now. If you think about the journey of Flickr from an online game to what, 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 whatever they became, Hotmail has got a journey, uh, uh, um, Instagram has got a journey, 
and yet we forget about these journeys. Now, now just think, just process this for a minute. A lot of people, when they're talking about entrepreneurship, will claim that if you stretch it over a few years, maybe five years, 70, 80 to 90% of all startups fail. Okay. And of the 10 to 15% that succeed, almost all of those succeeded doing something other than what they started doing. Which actually means that the failure rate of original ideas is 100%. Right? And so this whole idea that entrepreneurship or innovation is somehow linear and great ideas are, are, are really valuable, this is the myth of entrepreneurship and I think it's something that we have to constantly challenge. And it's very frustrating for entrepreneurs and, and innovators to have someone continuously questioning that. But actually, it is something that we actually have to do. And one of the reasons why we have to do it is when aspiring entrepreneurs hear successful entrepreneurs speak, and then they try to do what the successful entrepreneurs are talking about, they end up engaging in innovation theater. Right? And so if you walk into any large company these days, they have an innovation lab. And in the innovation lab is a mini Silicon Valley. Inside the mini Silicon Valley are post-it notes and <laughs> canvases and foosball tables and people that dress like most of you in this room. <laughs> right? And these people are supposed to bring innovation and the coolest factor to the organization. If you ask the leadership what they're supposed to do, like, I don't know, go in there and come up with some cool stuff. What we need is an app. <laughs> right? And so the more and more they engage in this innovation theater, the more problematic it actually becomes. Because what we know is that this misrepresents exactly what becomes successful entrepreneurship. So I came up with an equation. A very simple equation. And the equation is that clever ideas are important for sure. We like clever people. But actually, successful innovation is the combination of clever ideas and sustainably profitable business models. That's the, that, those are the two. When you put those things together, you have successful innovation. If you have one or the other, you have a problem. If you have only creative ideas, you have starving artists. If you've only got successful business models, You've got snake oil salespeople. And so you have to put both together so that you can have successful innovation. Now, I wish that in reality, innovation was actually this clean, right? You just kind of get an equation and you, and you, and you solve the equation. But actually what happens to you when you start working on your idea is this. Right? What you actually get is a bag of puzzle pieces as, as you start to do the work. And what's crazy about this bag of puzzle pieces is that you get no picture with it. So that's the first thing. You get a whole bunch of puzzles and you have no picture. And then what's even more crazy is that the bag is packed full of other puzzle pieces that have nothing to do with the puzzle you're trying to solve. So it's a mixture of like the puzzle pieces you need and the puzzle pieces you don't need. It's all noise and signal and it's just all messed up. And then what makes it worse is I don't even know what to call it, a puzzle where as you fit in one piece, all the other pieces you thought you had figured out change. <laughs> right? It, that is the chaos of entrepreneurship. And, 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 and so what you somehow in, in that bag, you have to dig in there and, 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 and find 
the, the PCs for, 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 for customer value, the, 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 the piece for creating the right solution, the piece for finding the right channel, the piece for finding the right revenue model, the, the puzzle piece for finding growth and scalability. It's somewhere in that bag and, and you don't know exactly how it's gonna work. And as much as we write business plans and, and, and all these things, nothing that's ever in a business plan ever happens in, in, in reality. And so I really love this quote, right, that enlightened trial and error succeeds over the planning of the lone genius. Right? And I think this really, really speaks to, 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 to entrepreneurship because with that bag of puzzles, you can't really plan your way through that. You, you kind of have to feel it out as you go. And it's, and it's that feeling out process that entrepreneurs have to actually do. That's the work of entrepreneurship. That's the work of innovation is feeling your way out through, through, through that puzzle. And the way to do that is really experimentation and, and trial and error. This is a, a version of the build, measure, learn loop. We've seen this a million times, I'm sure. You just have to actually use this engine to navigate your way towards success. You have to surface to yourself the things that you're assuming are true, but are not necessarily true, and then be disciplined enough to check if those things are true before you make decisions. And this is a hard discipline for entrepreneurs to have because what they want to do is make their stuff. You've all heard about the lean startup movement, right? People are talking about lean startup and MVPs, et cetera, et cetera. If you actually go to a startup accelerator right now, the worst people that are doing lean startup are startups. Like most founders just want to build their stuff. They don't want to talk to customers. They don't want to test business models. They don't want to worry about any of that. They just want to make their stuff because they're Elon Musk, right? Or at least that, that's what they think they are. Now, what's interesting about, about the bag of puzzles is that if you look really closely at your business model or, or whatever stuff that you're working on, whatever product that you're working on right now, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. If you go right down to the granular level of the stuff that you're trying to figure out, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a mess. But if you take a, 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 a higher point of view, if you just go like one level up, you start to realize that actually business is about figuring out, including the business of software, Mark, uh, see, I threw that in there. So, yeah, I, I, I want my check. So, the, um, including the business of software, is you have to figure out the same sort of things, right? At the heart of it is selling things for more money than it costs you to make. Now, that sounds absurd, right? But actually, when you're in a startup accelerator, when people are founding startups, you have to keep reminding them of that. But you actually have to remind people of that because they're so focused on building whatever product that, that, that they're actually working on. And, and, and that insight is fundamental to everything else that we're trying to do. And so what I bring is like the, the kind of seven questions or the seven plus a bonus question that you need to kind of answer in order to navigate your way towards business model success. Question number one, customer needs. This is about who are we serving and what problems are we solving for them? This is something that we've heard several times. But I'd actually like to go a step further and say to entrepreneurs and innovators that actually if you can't find a core group of people that truly, truly love your product, it's very hard to, to succeed. A lot of companies want to make their products and people, if people like your product, you think you're okay. But actually what we're learning is that a lot of the struggles that people have with growth, with scaling up their product, is because they then have to spend a lot of resource on marketing because they can't find a core group of users that love their product so much that they're willing to go around um, talking about it without the entrepreneurs being there, right? 
And so this is an interesting challenge. And a lot of entrepreneurs, this is actually one of the things that people talk about all the time. Make stuff customers want, make stuff customers want. But nobody wants to figure out how to do it. Nobody wants to even talk to customers. And, and it's a real challenge that, that, that we face out there in the world. And then you have to think about um, creating the right solution for those customers. Okay, So what is the solution that you're going to create? And does the solution solve their problem? Now, this is the part where most software engineers disappear. The moment you put them in front of the computer, you'll never see them again. There's this joke about engineers going dark, where like, you don't hear from them. They don't, even they don't like, like tweets or reply to text messages for two days because they're hacking. Right? And when they come back from hacking, they're really, really happy about how clever they are because they figured out some really cool hack. <laughs> it's like, yo. It's like I'm a former academic, so I spend a lot of my time writing papers and speaking at research conferences. When academics hang out, all they're trying to do is show other academics how clever they are. And as I've been hanging out with engineers, I've also figured out that what engineers are trying to do is show other, other engineers how clever they are. But actually, you're not working on a solution if it doesn't solve a problem. In English, solution means something that solves problems. This is something that you have to keep reminding people, right? And so it's like you can work on cool stuff all day, but it's not a solution unless it's actually something that delivers value to, to customers. And then you jump into actually making the solution. I've got a crazy man t t t testing stuff. And the question is, how much will it cost to create the solution? How are we going to be able to create it? Can we do it? So this stuff is, is kind of slightly independent from how clever we are or how clever our idea is. This is stuff that we have to actually figure out because the cost of creating the solution might have an impact on how much we want to sell the solution for or whether or not we can scale the solution at all. And this is stuff that we have to figure out. It's a piece of the puzzle that we have to kind of slot, slot in its place. The funnel. How are we going to acquire customers? How are we going to activate them? You've seen this before. This is Dave McClure's RRR matrix, the pirates. That's why there's a pirate there. right? So, that, so this is how we're going to acquire, how are we going to retain them? How are they ever going to refer? Are they, are they going to pay us? If we don't figure out the channels for acquiring customers, then we, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? Right? It, it, it sounds a bit like business 101. It's more like, oh man, could you just stop talk, talking to us about this? But what's fascinating about this is that, like, when you actually in situation with startup founders, it is this is the hardest conversation to have because they don't have answers to these questions and they don't feel that they should. Right? Um, revenue model: Are you going to be able to make money from the product at all? How much money are you going to charge? Um, um, uh, is what you're going to charge what customers are willing to pay? Is it more than what it's going to cost you to create the solution? These are conversations that, that, that you need to have. The growth engine. How are you going to scale from your core group of users? Is it going to be viral? Have you ever heard of, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a viral video. <laughs> That's not how it works. It's, you can't know on the first day that your video is going to be, there's no way of knowing upfront. Right? We know that virality is a coefficient that you have to measure and actually track. And so you can't just say you've made a viral video. There's a metric that tells us whether or not your video is actually viral or whether your product is viral. So you have to think about these things and think about how you're going to grow the product and figure that out. It's a piece of the puzzle that's actually important. Okay. 
Another one is the business environment. This speaks to the adaptability of your product. What is the lay of the land? Are there, is there anything that's coming up that might knock you out without you realizing it? Uh, competitors, uh, changes in law, um, uh, all these things. Is your product actually adaptive to the environment that it's about to go into? And this is something that most people that are hacking don't even think about at all. They're just like, yeah, I'm gonna put it on the app store. Like, okay, there's millions of other apps on there. How are people gonna find yours, et cetera, et cetera. And these are challenges that entrepreneurs don't want to think about. And then my bonus question, timing. This is, this is the eighth question. I have a friend called Adam Burke, who's a really cool cat, and he's got this saying that I really love. He says, do you know what being too early is? I go, what, Adam? He goes, failure. That's what you call it. Have you ever met those entrepreneurs like, yeah, man, I had a startup, and then you know, I got some funding. I was in YC and Techstars and Seed Camp. But you know, we were too early. That's a, that's a good story to tell. But yeah, being too early equals failure, right? So the question is, can you figure out that you are too early before you spend a lot of money and time? It's a piece of the puzzle that you have to figure out. Is it the right time to launch? When is the right time to launch? This is something that entrepreneurs can, can actually figure out. And so back to my point, I was just raising those as like business model questions that everybody has to answer. Your job as an entrepreneur is not to work on your clever idea. I've had a lot of fights with hackers about this. And I'm kind of waiting for you guys to start throwing tomatoes at me. I've had loads of fights with hackers about this. I had a guy who was like carrying the like big, thick software books. And I was like, so have you read any business books? And he was like, no, I don't read business books. My job is to make the best product possible. And he's like, the best product possible for who? Right? These are foundational questions that people have to answer. So as you work to try and like fit these puzzle pieces together, the problem is that a lot, of our, a lot of the ideas that, that, that we work on are not linear, so it doesn't look like the way I'm, I'm, I'm putting it up here. Some, you have, if you have a startup and you have a startup and you have a startup, all of you will have different puzzle pieces that are missing from your understanding. Some people will understand the channel well, some people will understand customers well, some people will have a really great piece of technology that's, that, 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 that they figured out, so they figured out the, the, the solution, now they're looking for a market. So you have to kind of meet entrepreneurs where they are. You have to benchmark where they are and then help them make decisions about what to do next. And this is kind of foundational. And so that's the kind of struggle that, 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 that we have. And so in order to deal with some of that, with some of the teams that I've worked with, I've invented this little tool. It's not a canvas, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> it's an A4 piece of paper. <laughs> right? And all I do with, with the teams is I have a conversation with them where I help them think about how they think their business model is going to work. When entrepreneurs talk about their product and their idea and how it's going to hit the world, they talk about it as if that's exactly what's going to happen. So I ask them, how do you think this is going to work in order to raise to them that whatever they're thinking is tentative? So it's how we think this will work. And then they kind of describe how they think this will work. And then we go into a conversation of what they know so far, what they've learned so far. What do they know for sure, for sure? Right? And they kind of outline the stuff they know for sure about how they think it will work. And then the hard part, 
what we still don't know. Right? And then we list out the things that we still don't know, the puzzle pieces that we still haven't figured out. We can, we're going to map those out. And then we make decisions about what we plan to do next. Right? This is absolutely foundational. And what I do with the teams that I work with is that we use this sheet of paper every single week. As we do a sprint, we would get back together and we walk through this sheet of paper. We do another sprint, get back together. Because every time you figure stuff out, stuff that you thought you knew moves to stuff you now don't know. Right? And that's the kind of evolution of the business model journey. But you, rather, this feels like going through like crazy iterations. Right? You have to give your teams, teams a sense that they're making progress. So in addition to that, what we do is we update and we rag status the key questions of every business model. To what extent have you answered these questions? Right? To what extent has all the work you've done made you feel confident to give a, is that, is that green? OK, that's green. This is green up here, <laughs> right? and this is orange, and, and that's red. <laughs> right? And so what we're trying to do is to get them to benchmark where they, where they are every week in terms of answering those business model questions. Have they figured out customer need? Have they figured out customer value, solution, the funnel, the revenue model, the growth engines, the business environment, and, and, and the timing? And as I'm working with them, you can see which teams are making progress and which ones aren't. Because what we think about when we think about innovation sometimes, especially with the Lean Startup movement, is that like, people are supposed to run experiments. So when you actually talk to people that run innovation labs and say, like, give us the metrics of your teams, they go, we have run 100 experiments. We've spoken to 1,000 customers. They got these like, vanity metrics about number of experiments. All these, like, the reason we run experiments is to make progress. And so, if, if a team runs one experiment and that experiment helps them move or turn one of these things to green, that experiment is more powerful than a team that runs 20 experiments and still can't figure out how to do this. So the number of experiments you've run is not a metric that helps us measure what progress you're actually making. Right? And so the combination of this tracker, where we capture all the activities that people are doing, plus the progress tracker, helps us navigate our entrepreneurs towards, towards success. OK, I thought I was going to speak for longer than that, but I'm going to stop now. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, 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 we've got questions. So who's going first? Oh, thank you. All right. No questions. No questions. OK. Um, if you meet uh, an entrepreneur for the first time, what's, if you only gave them one piece of advice, what would it be? Just one. Just one. Okay, that's an unexpected question. Um, go work at McDonald's. Good answer. Because, <laughs> yeah, you get more chance of making money there than <laughs> with whatever you're working on right now. <laughs> yeah. Adiza. So, uh, so I, I have been that, that person that the corporate has brought in to bit bring innovation, etc. Right. Um, and the corporate is very old school corporate, uh, the Canary Wharf Group, and the innovation is still going, level 39. So they wanted to bring fintech innovation to Canary Wharf. And it is working and it has happened, but uh, what would you say the advice for an entrepreneur is? Because 
a corporate really wants to meet certain business goals, but when you're in that position, you have so many stakeholders that you've got to adhere to. How, what, what would your advice be to um, someone that is in that role within a corporate? Because it, it is really hard to do, and you have this really fine diplomatic balance yes. um, that you've got to keep hold of, as well as you've got to keep the bottom line going. So uh, we, we had commercial meetings every week. Where is the money? Why are you wasting our money? Uh, kind of conversations. Uh, but the money has now been returned, so it's successful. That's great. Which is great, yeah. but many innovation projects don't work like that. So what would you say your core advice to an entrepreneur is? Because a lot of people are given those roles within big corporates now. All right, so for entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs are a problem for, 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 for a few reasons. Number one is innovation theater. A lot of entrepreneurs don't really... Like, if they were entrepreneurs, they'd be starting companies. So they kind of... I was once in a large company, and I ended up, like, ranting at the, at the group of teams that they put together to work on projects. And I was like, you guys are not real entrepreneurs because you get your salaries every month. You're just here to hang out. That's why you keep arguing about the color of the button, right? I was kind of ranting. If you were a real entrepreneur, you'd worry about how to make money and care about the business model because your house is on the line. That, that's a, that's a kind of, so you have a problem with that. It's just theater for them. It's, like, it's almost like being on sabbatical in the lab. And then after that, they can say, you know, I, I worked on a cool app or whatever. So you have to deal with that innovation theater element. And because they don't have that pressure of like being a real entrepreneur, you have to work on the philosophy of what they're thinking about doing, which is the philosophy that we really want to make the product successful. We want, to, we, we want to work on this. And then the second thing that is what I call the myth of the innovation lab is that when, when entrepreneurs get an innovation lab from their leadership, they think that their leadership likes them. <laughs> so they just like fall asleep in it. They're like, yeah, man, we are in like this lab, uh, the ideas lab, or the, the, the imagine lab. You know, they got like all these cool names, the emerge lab, or Level 39, right? So, so they, you know, they got all these, so, so you know, that's, that's what I run. I'm the head of innovation. And they think that their leaders like them. But actually, a lot of leadership don't care about what's happening in, in an innovation lab. It's like, it's a place to go play over there. We're going to run the real business here. And a lot of the innovation lab stuff that's going on is innovation theater at the leadership level just so that their companies can appear to be entrepreneurial, right? And so for me, I say to uh, entrepreneurs, they have two choices. You either run a guerrilla movement or you do a full frontal assault on your organization. In a guerrilla movement, what you try and do is you try and lower the cost of innovation so that you never rise to the consciousness of the people that might kill you. <laughs> it's a proper guerrilla movement. You, you show up unexpected, you blow stuff up, and you run away, right? And, so, uh, and in order to, to succeed at a guerrilla movement, what you need is a diplomat. You need a leader that gets it, that can kind of run scrimmage for you and cover stuff up and get you resources, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're running a guerrilla movement, you're not trying to transform your organization. And a lot of entrepreneurs get confused by that. They confuse trying to transform their organization with just trying to get cool stuff done inside the organization. If you're just trying to get cool stuff done, run a guerrilla movement and spend all your time trying to hide. Don't, the, the, don't then surface and start telling the leaders, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> right? This is, that, that, that's actually very important. If you do make the other decision, which is that you don't want to keep hiding and you want to change your company, you want to, then you start, you start needing to do stakeholder management. You have to start having meetings and conversations and politics and pleading and begging and embarrassment and humiliation and almost losing your job every two days. All of these things come as part of that, but you have to make that choice consciously. Right? 
and also it, you know, with your own temperament and your own skill set. Yeah. But that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, put your hands up if you've got questions. Um, talking about a kind of a, a less like a big corporate, but a, an established software company, and this is a question that we get asked quite a lot. Um, you've maybe got 100, 200 people, successful product, but market that's not going to be there forever. Right. Um, a lot of, lot of companies of that size really struggle with coming up with that new breakout idea. Have you got any kind of thoughts on how they can go about that and, and whether that, that innovation should come within or is it something that you can acquire or, or how do you go about it? Yeah, so before you, before you actually start having a conversation about whether or not you need to acquire or whether or not you need to come with innovation from within, you need to, you need to have an innovation ambition. And so, and the time to have an innovation ambition is when you are actually successful, which is a hard thing to do. So I'm starting to think that the work that I do is about, is a human problem. And the human problem is that when you're successful, you then tend to forget that success doesn't last forever. So how do we, how do we help successful people from being complacent, right? Because we manage everything to the bottom line, you're making profits, you're growing, and it is at that point when you're growing, that's the time to set your innovation ambition. So for example, if you work in a company, how many of you would say, so you've got like these three types of innovation. So you've got like core, where you're constantly updating your core product. Maybe you've got adjacent, where you're like trying to enter new markets or trying a different kind of type of product that's similar to your core product. And then you've got like transformational innovation, which is like this crazy place, new products for new markets you've never been in. How many of you would say like in your companies that you're working right now, 10% of your investments are in transformational. Put your hand up. One. Two. two. Hey, two. Great. How many of you would say 5%? Another one. 1%? <laughs> so you're not even in the game. <clears throat> like, it's hard to win in the game if you're not even playing, right? And, and that's what I mean, Mark, right? Which is like, you have to choose your innovation ambition up front. Every organization, the moment you start becoming successful, that's the moment you start thinking about the balance in your portfolio. Right? You've heard this advice that large companies should act like startups, act like startups. I object to that advice. Large companies don't need to act like startups. Large companies need to act like ecosystems, portfolios of products. And in that portfolio of products, you have core products, you have adjacent products, and you have transformational products. If you don't have a balanced portfolio of products and services in your company, you're not, preparing for the, you're not preparing for the future. And what's interesting about the cultural artifacts that we use to run our companies is the cultural artifacts we use to run our companies are useful for a stable world. So if we, use, if we have an accountant and we do annual budgeting and we do five-year projections, all of these artifacts are based on a philosophy that the world is stable and predictable. And those artifacts constrain innovation because those are the only tools we use to run <coughs> our companies. Now, can you imagine a religion or a culture that doesn't have artifacts and rituals? How would you even practice it? Right? So if we say we want to transform the culture of our organization and bring in an innovation culture, we have to start creating artifacts and rituals for balancing our portfolios, doing incremental investing, running experiments, tracking progress. We have to create these management artifacts. If we don't have those artifacts, it'll be harder for us to manage for the future. Thank you. Arturo. 
Yes, I have a question. Uh, how, how do you uh, uh, manage timing? What sort of metrics would you use? So how, how would you know if you're too early or way too early? In other words, uh, when, it, when it's time to call it quits or wait? Yeah. Yes, so part of mapping your business model questions is asking whether or not you need some, some other things that are not inside your startup that are out in the ecosystem to, to, to succeed. Do you need technology to be a certain way? Do you need your key partners to be thinking or working in a particular way? Do you need certain resources to be available? Right? That's the way to, to, to map whether or not you're at the right time. What do you need outside of your own company in order for your company to then succeed? And if those things aren't there, you either then have to do the hard work of creating them. Like if you're going to be making an electric car, you might have to do the hard work of creating electric charging service stations along the motorway because they're not there, or you, or you wait. Right? And so that's the, that's the hard decision that you have to make. It just means that for everyone who's working on a clever idea, the success of your clever idea has a lot to do with the ecosystem surrounding that idea. And we tend to forget that as entrepreneurs. Says the man with rad surf on his T-shirt. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it's something to do with surfing and waiting for waves or something. Uh, yeah, Jason. Hang on. You can catch, can't you? Yeah. Hi. Hey, David. In my company, um, we had a few times we had these pushes to move into a new market or develop a brand new product. And um, I found that there was a different culture within the, the, the new thrust versus the, the old stuff. And that created a tension in the company that wasn't always positive. Um, everybody on the old stuff wanted to work on the new stuff until the new stuff wasn't going as fast as they thought it should and then they wanted to go back to the old stuff. Do you have any comments on how to set the culture in the company up for success? Can I just put a little bit more context around this? Because uh, Jason actually spoke last year at um, Boss Europe um, about selling the company um, that he can name if he wants to. But one of the things you were saying that when you actually sold it was that you got to that point where you didn't see that super growth kind of coming through. So this is obviously something that um, you're still thinking about. I'm so. still trying to crack it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've run into a lot of other people that have the, you know, have the, same, yeah. have the same challenge. Yes. So I don't know what was happening in your company, but what I've noticed when I'm working in companies and, and you see this culture clash, what you tend to see, where, where you tend to see the culture clash is when there's a misunderstanding about the tools for running and managing innovation are different from the tools for managing and running the core product, right? And so these two things don't kind of go together well. They don't work together. They operate at completely different rhythms. The experiment is like iterating, and the core product is about like, you know, scaling and growing, and so they're moving it at, 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 at different paces. And what most companies have failed to do is to make that distinction explicit at an organizational level so that everybody in the company understands exactly why there's this distinction, right, between what, what, what the so-called cool guys are doing in the innovation space and, and, and how, we're running the, how we're running the core product. And so what we actually need now, what I think is Management 101, is like this connectedness between like, here is the part of the portfolio that's at this stage of the innovation cycle, and here's what we're going to do with it. Here's another part of the portfolio that's at a different stage. Here's what we're going to do with it. And here's another part that's at a different stage, and this is what we're going to do with it. And that balance 
of like managing that management philosophy that kind of connects these two elements together. I think that's really what's missing. And so what tends to happen then is like a lot of large, a lot of large companies or people that work in large companies then, then go, we're going to set up an innovation lab because the innovation lab is going to be far away from the mothership. We're going to be away from the MBAs and all these people and we're going to do cool stuff over there. And then what happened is like a lab that I, I was working with, they had like 14 successful products, 14. 14 successful products that the large company was refusing to scale. Because when you bring back your 14 successful products, the leadership is like, who are you again? Like, I'm the guy from the innovation lab, Tendai, from level 39. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, yeah, but why do we want to scale this? It's not on our strategy, it's not on our, right? And so what I, when I'm working in large companies, what I'm trying to do, and this is the hard part of the work that I do, that's why I think I have like stomach problems and ulcers and stuff, I spend a lot of my time speaking with leadership, trying to convince them to change the way they run the business so they can adopt these new practices, so they can put innovation as part of the strategy, part of the corporate strategy, as part of the company strategy. Say, we're going to actually start adding these new growth engines, and the way we're going to manage them is going to be different. Here are the artifacts we're going to use. And then when they succeed, here's how we're going to integrate them back into the company. Right? All of that has to be kind of mapped out and kind of thought about up front. And, but, but, but we don't tend to do that, and so that's why we then end up with these conflicts and tensions, and we don't know how to manage them, because then we're just kind of making it up as we go, right? And, 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 it, and it gets hard. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that answers your question. Yeah. Is that Jonathan? Was that a, no? Okay. There's a hand over there. Just one here. One more. Put your hand up, sir. Who wants to Sorry. Um, I've kind of set on the two sides of the fence and in between as well. So I worked in big corporates, uh, I run my own startup and I did a bit of the innovation lobby thingy. <laughs> and the question I'd like to put forward is, should large corporates actually bother with innovation? <laughs> right? If you work in a, because you know, the mentality is very different in a large corporate, you are about incremental gains. Five or 10% sales growth, 5% cost reduction. That will get you promoted. And the people that you get into those companies are people who can do that very well. Startup is basically a binary bet, right? Mosquito, yeah. It'll work or it'll fail. And if it works, it'll be great. And if it fails, you know, there is no 5%. It's minus 20%. End of story, yeah. right? And so trying to bridge between those two worlds is actually very, very hard work. Also, the timelines are different. You need to show 5% in six months' time, in three months' time, preferably. In, in startup world, very, very different. So is it not better for a startup for, for, to say to corporate, say, keep your eye out in the market. When you see something emerging, buy it for 100 million and spin it up from 100 million to a billion, because that's what you do well. But that beginning stage, don't bother. Just look at what's there and buy you know, 100 million. Don't spend 10 million on an, in, on an incubator, because it'd be wasted. Um, spend 100 million on something that you know you can scale to a billion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you completely. <laughs> if only it was that simple. If only 100 million, that's an expensive buy, right? 
And a lot of companies spend 100 million and then fail to scale the startup. So actually, large companies are also places where startups go to die. So if we follow your argument all the way through, large companies should just stop doing everything. So they, should stop, they should stop buying startups. They should stop investing in incubators. They should stop. Because it's not inevitable that when a large company buys a startup, the startup will succeed inside the large company. In fact, the data shows that it's, a startup is much more likely to struggle. The founders will quit. And then the product will get absorbed and die or just get put you know, somewhere where it's not supposed to be. And so I always have a conversation with this when, when a large company asks me, should we acquire or should we, should we um, do innovation internally? And I say, if the reason you're asking me that question is because you feel that you can't innovate within your culture, then even the startups you acquire will die in your culture. And so they don't have a choice. Large companies don't have a choice. It's not that they have a choice to keep working on 5% growth or 5% cost reduction. They no longer have the choice. Because when the disruption moment happens to them, they can disappear like that, regardless of their size. And so most companies no longer actually have a choice. And so when you meet a lot of executives, the only thing that's on their mind these days is how do we innovate? Back in the days when you did an MBA, they would tell you your job is to um, find a competitive advantage build a moat around your competitive advantage, and then protect it with your life. That was like management 101, strategy 101. But these days, there's no such thing as competitive advantage. The world is changing so quickly. And the thing about human beings is that it's hard for us to understand lineage, uh, sorry, um, exponential change. What we understand very easily is linear change. That we, we understand, but like this kind of step change stuff, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's hard for us to predict exactly which product or technology is going to be successful in the future. We can see things happening, and we have to kind of play and, 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 and experiment with them. So to my mind, they, they have to figure it out. It's, it's, now, it's now that time of, in human history where there's just they have no choice. Don't forget you can get updates of new episodes of the Boss Podcast and of talks and events coming up in the Business of Software calendar by subscribing to our newsletter. Visit businessofsoftware.org updates to sign up for free. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.